If you'll turn, guess where? This is the last time for a while, I promise. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, we've been in this passage of Scripture now for more than a couple of months. I know that you're well aware of that, and some of you may have grown weary of it. Well, this is our last week to look at this passage of Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, What we've been looking at is Peter's comprehensive, systematic, Holy Spirit-inspired discipleship process, this process for maturity in 2 Peter chapter 1. As we think about this systematic, comprehensive, Holy Spirit-inspired pathway to maturity or discipleship strategy that Peter gives us in 2 Peter chapter 1, I want you to know what my goal is in this and through this and beyond this My long-term goal is to hopefully have Scripture-centered devotions on each of these eight qualities, whether it's faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. I want to have five daily Scripture readings and meditations on each of those qualities, and then a summary, a short summary, as short as I can be, a short summary of each of those qualities on video placed online so that you, if you're trying to lead someone to the Lord or you're trying to disciple someone in a one-on-one relationship or a one-on-two relationship, you can go there and there's scriptures laid out to fuel your faith. There's scriptures laid out to fuel moral excellence. There's scriptures laid out to fuel knowledge of Christ. There's scriptures laid out for each day of the week to feel one of those qualities, and a video to cap that off, just a 10 to 15 minute video to cap that off, to walk you through this process of maturing and to help you walk someone else through the process of maturing as disciples. That's a long-term hope from this. I don't know how we can improve on a discipleship strategy that the Holy Spirit has given us. I don't know how we can come up with a better plan to mature as believers than to do what the Holy Spirit has shown us in this passage of Scripture. So this morning we're going to conclude this whole series the same way we introduced it. We're going to do a 30,000 feet fly overview of the text as a whole in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. But this time I hope instead of looking forward in curiosity and with questions, we'll be able to look back with clarity and see it all tie together. So I want us to look at those six P words that we began with a couple of months back. And then end with some very pointed application questions to consider. So we're going to look at this overview of the entire text again in the rearview mirror. And hopefully have some good application. That first P word that we learned about from 2 Peter chapter 1 is found in verses 2 and 3. And it's the word provision. Provision. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that... His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The Apostle Peter is telling us that God has provided us everything. There's nothing we bring to the table here. God has provided us everything. Everything specifically pertaining to life and to godliness. And He's provided it to us by His grace free of charge. James 1.17 tells us that every 
good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing comes from Him and He has provided us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And He has done this, according to the latter part of verse 3, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. The second P word we looked at is promises. Look in verse number 4. For by these, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. God has granted to us everything. He's provided us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And by those things that He has provided us by His grace, He's given us even more. He's granted us even more. He's granted us His promises. The Bible says that they're precious promises. And that word precious implies valued, costly, or of great price. The word is used again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, where Peter wrote, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So Peter uses this word precious to refer not only to promises, but he uses this word precious to refer to the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Not only are they precious promises that God has given, but they are magnificent promises, he says as well. And this word magnificent implies large, implies great. Hebrews 10.21, that Greek word is used where it says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Who is that great priest that we have over the house of God? It is none other than Jesus Christ. Our great high priest. So God, by His grace, has given us freely, by His grace, precious. Blood of Jesus, precious, magnificent. Greatness of Jesus, magnificent. Promises so that by them, you may be like Him. And you may escape corruption, which leads us to the third P word. Provision, promises, and partakers. Look again in verse number 4. For by these... He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now look, God by His grace has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and to godliness. And by those things that He's given us, He's provided, with, with, provided us with precious and magnificent promises. And through applying and claiming and clinging to those promises by faith, we can become partakers of the divine nature and flee the corruption that is in the world by lust. How is this possible? Because God has provided us everything we need for life and godliness. He has provided us His precious and magnificent promises. And we can be made like Him as we escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. So there's a positive and a negative. God has provided us with things that would make us like Him, and we reject things, the corruption that is in the world, that would make us not like Him. And those two things come together to make us godly people. Ephesians 4, 22-24 echoes this. In reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Do you see that? Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted... 
with the lust of deceit. We can escape the corruption that is in the world by lust, by laying aside the old self, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Claim those promises, precious and magnificent. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in holiness, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Put on that divine nature. Be partakers of the divine nature. Number four, the progression. Some of you are getting excited because I was moving through this so fast, but now we get to the progression, and this is where we spent most of our time, so we're going to slow down just a minute. God has provided us all that we need for life and godliness. He's given us promises, precious and magnificent. He's made us partakers of the divine nature. And now there's a progression here in verses 5 through 7. Listen to what it says. Now for this reason also. For what reason? For this reason, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And that God has provided us precious and magnificent promises. And that you can be partakers of the divine nature as you escape the corruption that is found in the world. Because of this very reason also, applying all diligence, not some diligence, but all diligence. In your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Here is that eight-part comprehensive, systematic strategy for spiritual growth and maturity and disciple-making that Peter gives us in this passage of Scripture. It begins with faith. First of all, faith is the foundation that all of these other building blocks are built upon. If we do not have saving faith, none of these other things can be a reality and none of these other things will really matter. They'll just make us look like Pharisees. We've got to have the foundation of faith in our life. And the question that we ask as we looked at faith weeks and weeks ago, and the question that we ask again this morning is, that, is are you certain this morning, under the sound of my voice, whether it's in the, in the park or online, are you certain this morning that if you were to die right now, you would step into eternity and hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Are you certain right now that you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and as your personal Savior? Are you certain right now that He knows you and that He's written your name in the Lamb's Book of Life and that He sealed you with His Holy Spirit? Is there any measure of doubt in your life? unhealthy doubt in your life. If we don't have faith and our faith grounded and assurance of our salvation, we can't build upon a rocky faith, a shaky faith, a a weak foundation. I know that you hear it every single week, but it's really the only reason that we have together. And it is the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want you to listen very, very carefully to this. If there's any question about where you stand with Jesus, if there's any question about your faith and and the solidification of your faith in your life as the foundation of life, I want you to hear me very careful. God, the God who created all things, including you, including me, this God is perfectly holy He is absolutely sinless. He is absolutely spotless. There is no blemish in His character or in His person whatsoever. He is absolutely perfect. And if we were to walk into His presence, if we were to see Him, He would burn our eyeballs out of our sockets. 
He is a consuming fire. We think we can look at the sun so far away and it blind us and we think we can waltz into God's presence who created that sun who is the light of the world. He would consume us. That's how holy he is. And his standard for us, his standard for me and for you, for every person on earth, is not being better than so-and-so. It's not being better than deacon so-and-so. It's not being better than Hitler. But it's being perfect. His standard for us is absolute sinless perfection. Sinless perfection. That means... That means that if we are going to pass God's test, His final exam for us, we we have to be absolutely perfect, never sinning in our actions, never sinning in our words, never sinning in our thoughts, never sinning in our motives. We have to be holy just as He is holy. We have to be perfect just as He is perfect. We have to be sinless just as He is sinless. And that poses a problem for everybody listening to me right now and every person who's ever lived on this earth except for one man That poses a problem, and the problem is we have all sinned and we've all come short of God's glorious standard. You have fallen short of God's glorious standard, and if you die right now, depending on how good of a person you've been, how holy you've been, how righteous you've been, how good of a person you've been, you are going to see God just long enough to be consumed in the fires of hell for all eternity. That's the reality. The wages of one sin is Death, eternal death and damnation. God is perfectly holy and we are absolutely not holy. And the only thing a just God can do, a just judge can do with unholy subjects is punish them and to punish them for all eternity. But the good news is that Jesus Christ, the exact image and representation of God the Father, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he humbled himself and he took on the form of a person born in a manger in Bethlehem to a virgin. And he lived a sinless, spotless, perfect, holy life, the life that God demands and requires of every one of us. He lived that life. And listen, he can take his perfect, righteous record and his perfect, righteous account and his perfect holiness and he can apply it to your account here this morning right now this very moment this very moment he can take his perfect righteous account and he can put it onto your account right now this morning he can make a transfer and make you perfectly righteous and holy and pure in the eyes of God the father It still leaves us a little bit of a problem, though, doesn't it? Because he may make our account righteous, but we still have sin. Well, Jesus wasn't done. He came and he lived the perfect, sinless, spotless, holy life in our place so that he could credit our account with that perfect righteousness and holiness. But he went beyond that and he was obedient to death. Even death on a cross. He hung on a cross 
and shed his blood, not to cover up our sin, not to hide our sin, but to cleanse our sin and to wash us whiter than snow with his precious blood that we just read about. So you see, Jesus can not only give us his perfect righteousness, but he can take upon himself our unholiness. He can take upon himself our sinfulness. He can take upon himself our iniquity and our unrighteousness. And God the Father can pour out wrath and judgment upon our sin on Jesus, on the cross, until our sin debt has been paid in full. There's only two options. We can pay for our sin for all eternity, or Jesus can pay for our sin on the cross. How do we receive forgiveness from Christ? How do we receive our sin debt being paid in full and His righteousness? We We repent of our sin. We change our mind about our sin. And we turn away from our sin. And we turn to God through faith in what Jesus did for us. Not what we've done. Not how much money we give. Not how often we come to church. Not not according to how much good we do. But we look to Jesus and His perfect righteousness. We turn from our sin and we turn to God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when that happens in your life, hear me, when you, when you make that decision by faith to receive Him and to believe in His name, the Bible says you have the right to be called children of God. Settle your faith this morning. Settle your faith today. You cannot grow, you cannot make disciples, you cannot be discipled if you don't settle your faith right now today. Jesus Christ lived the life that God required of us. He he died the death that our sin deserves. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. But he didn't stay there. On Sunday morning, he rose from the grave bodily, alive forevermore. God approved of that sacrifice. The Father approved of that sacrifice that Jesus made. He approved of that righteous record that Jesus provided. And he rose him from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's been given a name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you this morning, would you this morning confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord? Would you this morning turn from your sin Would you turn from your sin and turn to God through faith in Christ and receive Him as the Lord of your life this morning? Would you have faith? We'll pray that God would grant you repentance this morning. We pray that God would grant you faith this morning. We pray that you would now, right now, where you are, call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Faith. And then the second quality that Peter mentions is moral excellence. This was a difficult word that we worked hard to define. And here's the definition we came up with. Moral excellence, or as some of your translations may say, virtue, is moral energy that courageously, vigorously, 
and actively lives out the faith with great fortitude, just like the early church did in the face of continual opposition, suffering, and persecution. We are now in and entering into more and more, day by day, a culture and a context in which we will need moral excellence more than ever before. We need that moral energy that courageously, vigorously, and actively lives out the faith with great fortitude, just like the early church did in the face of continual opposition, suffering, and persecution. And then beyond moral excellence, we need knowledge. We add to our faith moral excellence, and to our moral excellence, knowledge. And this knowledge is, I believe, not referring to general knowledge, but a knowledge specifically of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look back up in verse number 2 of Second Peter chapter 1, you read this, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The knowledge of Jesus our Lord. Look in verse number 3. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Verse number 8, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you flip over to 2 Peter chapter 2 and look in verse number 20, you read this, If after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then flip over to chapter 3 verse 18 and you find that it says, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Every verse in Second Peter that has to do with knowledge is linked directly to knowledge of Jesus Christ. Why would this knowledge be any different? We need to grow in the knowledge of Jesus, both biblically, what the Bible teaches about Jesus, what the Bible says about Jesus, and also personally. We need to grow in the truth of who Jesus is and an experience of who Jesus is. We add to our faith moral excellence and to our moral excellence knowledge and to our knowledge self-control. As we talked about self-control, we compared it to that self-control of an athlete which literally, who literally lays down their lives for a perishable wreath, a gold-plated at best metal, a $2 trophy. But we, we bring our bodies under self-control and under submission, unto submission for a wreath, a reward that will never perish. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, Paul asks the question, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. There it is, self-control. They're running in the games, they exercise self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore... I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave. So that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. How many of us are slaves to our bodies? Self-control. Let's make slaves out of our bodies not be slaves to our bodies. And then perseverance. 
Perseverance does not give in to testing or temptation. It doesn't give up on Christ's return or on Christ's reward. And it doesn't give out and throw in the towel. But it presses forward to the very end. We don't put our hands to the plow and look back. That person's not fit for the kingdom of God. We push through, persevere in the difficult times. Through the spiritual highs and the spiritual lows, we keep pressing forward in perseverance. And then, number six, godliness. We add to our faith moral excellence, to our moral excellence, knowledge, to our knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to our perseverance, godliness. The Puritan John Brown said this, Godliness is a general name for religious duties. For our duties in reference to God. In contradistinction to our duties in reference to ourselves and our fellow men. This is, a, this is a vertical relationship. Vertical duties. Not horizontal duties. Not inward duties. But upward duties. He says it is descriptive of the right state of the individual with regard to God. The right state of the individual with regard to God. Are you right with God this morning? That's the question. The right state of his mind. Of his heart. And of his life, of his thoughts, his affections, and his conduct. The right way of thinking, feeling, and acting towards God. That is what it means to be godly. Number seven, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness, this is a love that is expressed horizontally to the brothers and sisters in Christ. Where we minister to the brethren. We honor the brethren. We show hospitality to the brethren. We encourage the brethren. And then as we saw last week, love, agape, love for all mankind. 1 Corinthians 13, love, a Christ-like love. So there's the provision of everything we need for life and godliness. There's the promises that are precious and magnificent. We're the, we can be partakers of the divine nature as we progress into maturity by adding to our faith knowledge, our moral excellence, into our moral excellence knowledge, into our knowledge self-control, into our self-control perseverance, into our perseverance godliness, into our godliness brotherly kindness, into our brotherly kindness love. And then look at what that produces in verse number 8. Produce. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, if these eight things are abundantly present in your life and they're actually on the increase, that reality will cause you to be useful and fruitful for the kingdom. Verse number 8, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These qualities produce usefulness and Fruitfulness for the kingdom. They produce clear sight, verse 9. He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. They not only give us clear sight, but also security. Verse number 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And they will supply us entrance into the eternal kingdom in verse 11 for in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our lord and savior jesus christ will be abundantly supplied to you what when we add these qualities to our life and we diligently go after these qualities and we increase in these qualities we are made useful and fruitful for the kingdom we're given clear sight to see through the eyes and the lens of jesus christ we're given security in our faith we're given a supply abundantly into the kingdom of God. And then last, number six, priority. Verse 12 to 15, Peter says, Therefore, 
because of all that we've just seen. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter was going to make pounding these truths into his followers his number one priority until the day he died. Shouldn't we do the same? I've already shared with you the long-term plan. But what about today? What about the immediate and short-term plan? To be reminded of these things in your own life. Well, you don't just come listen to the sermon series, gather some information, and move on to the next one. That's what we do. We gather information, we put it in our file, and we move on to the next one and get some more information. We listen to the sermons, and we move on. When, when we need to listen to the sermons and look at the Scriptures and ask ourselves, what needs to happen in my life today, right now this morning, Sunday, November 22nd, to make these things, these qualities, more of a reality in my life. As we close our time together this morning, I want you to reflect on what we've learned. And in an effort to get beyond the information to practical transformation, I want you to honestly ask yourself these questions. So just go into a spirit of self-reflection and meditation. Don't just humor me, but really think through these questions. And answer these questions. And go back to these questions. Does your life give evidence that you have saving faith? Does your life really give evidence that you have saving faith? If not, what is it that's standing between you and repenting of your sins this morning and turning to God through faith in Christ and being transformed by His grace and His mercy. What is it that's stopping you this morning? What is it that's keeping you this morning? You come in here unsure of where you stand. You leave unsure of where you stand thinking that there's some kind of magical Holy Ghost fairy dust that's going to sprinkle on you and fix your problems. The Bible commands you to repent and put your faith and your trust in Christ this morning. What is it that's keeping you from doing that? Do something this morning. Does your life give evidence that you have saving faith? If not, what needs to happen today, now? Today is the day of salvation. Number two. Are you boldly courageously and actively living out the faith with great fortitude. Moral excellence. Are you boldly, courageously, and actively living out the faith day to day with great fortitude? If not, what is it? What is it that is suffocating your boldness? What is it that is suffocating your courage? And your fortitude and your moral excellence. Go to war with that. 
and go to God in prayer and seize that moral excellence and seek to grow in moral excellence. Number three, are you growing in your biblical understanding of Jesus and in your personal experience with Jesus? Are you growing in your biblical understanding of Jesus and in your personal experience with Jesus? I hope that's not a sign of what our budget's going to look like next year. (laughs) Holy Spirit may have just blown it all away right there. What do we need to do? What do you need to do? They'll catch them all. Look back up here. They're not going to get away. What do you need to do on a day-to-day basis to increase your understanding of Jesus? Both biblically and personally. It starts with opening your Bible each day. Opening your Bible up each day and walking with Jesus each day. But what are you going to do about it? Number four, are you disciplining every part of your body and bringing it under control? What parts of your body and life are most undisciplined this morning? And what changes do you need to make today to increase in self-control to go to war and to make your body your slave and your body parts your slave rather than you being your body's slave? Number five, are you steadfast and persevering in the faith? If not, what is it that causes you to doubt and stagnate? How can you avoid those things practically and pursue perseverance? Number six, are you growing in godliness? Being characterized by the divine nature rather than the corruption that is in the world. Are you more characterized by the divine nature or by the corruption that is in the world? What is it in your life that is hindering your godlikeness? It's not worth it. How do you need to restructure your day-to-day life to avoid those hindrances and pursue godliness? Number seven, are you practicing brotherly kindness by serving, honoring, encouraging, and showing hospitality to your brothers and sisters in Christ? If not, why not? And what are you going to do about it? And are you loving like Jesus? What is it that causes your love for others to grow cold? What needs to change in your day-to-day life to soften your hearts towards others? All those questions are in your church app. I want to encourage you to consider them and write out a plan and to go to war with what stands between you and spiritual maturity and write out a plan for how you're going to make changes, not just sermon notes, but changes so that we can pursue Christ-likeness maturity, and be the disciple-makers that God would have us to be. We're going to pray, and as we pray, if you need counsel, guidance, direction, somebody to pray with you, there'll be ministers around the, the fountain. Please don't leave until somebody you see somebody you trust to pray with you, to talk with you. Thank you for being here this morning. Again, next week we'll be in there at 10 a.m. in the ministry center, parking lot, at home, all over creation, wherever you fit. If you need to give an offering, those buckets will be around and about as you make your way out of here. Let me pray for us, and the train can be our great amen. God, thank you for the day, the people that are here, your blessings, your mercy, your grace, your word, this strategy that you've 
laid out for us in 2 Peter 1. Help us to apply it, to live it, to understand it, to use it, to mature and to grow, and to help others to mature and to grow. And as we move back in doors next week and the changes that that will bring, as we think about the church and the future of the church and, and where we are and where we need to be and where we're going, I pray that you would give us your mind as we look at that very topic over the next couple of weeks. That you would bless us and that you would use us and give us a great Thanksgiving. Bring us back next week. In Jesus' name, amen.